Our study this morning is to continue in the book of Philippians, the letter, that is, of Philippians. Uh, Paul, the apostle, writes to the church in Philippi last week, our uh, pastoral intern, uh, Josiah. Fortunidi did a great job of explaining from God's word uh, the importance uh, for us as a church to have, amongst other things, uh, humility. And, uh, and, and the reason that humility is important is because that's the forge, the place, the foundation that we experience unity. And it's not just unity around morality. It's not unity around, uh, you know, a particular uh, philosophy of education. It's not a unity around uh, any, uh, you know, particular initiative. It's unity around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, those opening verses of uh, chapter 2 were highlighted how we shouldn't be selfish. Uh, we shouldn't be self-absorbed people. Selfish people are a pain, aren't they? Selfish people are a miserable pain to them and to us. I can still remember uh, British pastor Rico Tice with his accent in a in kind of a jest talked about a quote from Samuel Butler. Samuel, Samuel uh, Butler wrote of two incredibly selfish people, Mr. and Mrs. Carlyle. And he wrote this. How very good of God to cause Carlisle and Mrs. Carlisle to marry one another. And so to make two people miserable instead of four people. <laughs> Some of you got that. Uh, we know what it's like. You know, when pride is operative, when it exists, surprise, we lose the capacity. And all of us have it. All of us can turn inward. All of us can experience selfishness. Surprise, relationships don't work too well between spouses, between children, between friends, between family, co-workers, uh, the church family. It's, it's no surprise. I heard the analogy. As we look at these, uh, these, these verses, I heard the analogy that what we've reached and where we find ourselves now in chapter 2 is really uh, getting into this, this particular chapter, the meat and the heart of Paul's letter not, not that other things haven't been important. They've just been kind of tasty uh, appetizers to build us up to the main course. Uh, last weekend, we were away uh, visiting Krista's family and celebrating her parents' 50th uh, wedding anniversary, which is a great uh, celebration. We spent the whole day last Saturday uh, commemorating and celebrating. We had special food. We, we not, but not we, others had made food ahead of time. Uh, our family had prepared, uh, you know, hors d'oeuvres and appetizers and uh, and, 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 and Hans and Gretchen, Chris's parents, couldn't go in the kitchen. They couldn't serve. They're so inclined to do that. But we said, no, 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 you just enjoy the day. You just sit tight. And the grandchildren came and, and, and served uh, them and guests. And uh, we enjoyed these. And then it built up to uh, what was the main meal, which was uh, this special steak that we had bought days in advance. And it was all prepared uh, ahead of time, marinated and everything ready to be grilled and enjoyed as the main the main meal, all of it was good up until then, but this was the special meal when we sat down, all of us together and enjoyed. And in some ways, I think that's somewhat what we experience now because Paul has prepared and served up for us uh, something to ponder and to enjoy. Really, the heart here is the main course. Some believe that chapter two, as it opens, is actually a, a reiterating of a Christian hymn of the early church. But we don't know that for certain. It doesn't really uh, ultimately matter if he did take these words up uh, for that purpose. Uh, what we do know is that it is some of the sweetest and some of the most sublime uh, in all of the New Testament. There are these words here that are, are, are for us uh, to be treasured. It, it, it's almost uh, mind-blowing, uh, the beautiful words, the beautiful truths, the, the beautiful Savior. So let me invite you to stand 
as uh, we give deference and honor God's word. Philippians chapter two. I'll read the opening verses from last week, uh, but then we'll just focus on verses five through eleven. Hear this. This is the word of God. Paul writes, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. Thanks be to him. You may be seated. Join me. Father, we need help. So would you please mercifully right now grant to us uh, your spirit that we might have open ears and soft hearts, clear minds, a teachable spirit. So that we might come and surrender to your word and to your will and to your wisdom, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Uh, we all have experienced this at one point or another. We, we watch something unfolding. Uh, we, we see something occurring and we look and we say, what? what what on earth did they have in mind? What was she thinking? What was when he did that? What was he thinking? Right. Which which is really kind of a. A way, if you translate it, it's critical because you're saying, I don't think you were thinking. <laughs> when you did that or you, you, you said that or you wrote that, we, we know you weren't thinking probably. Or maybe you, you, know, you, 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 you use it in a critical way. But there are times, of course, that we, we may not have a snarky or critical way of saying that. We, we genuinely want to know. We look at a friend and we, we're puzzled. Or maybe we, they do something that's profound and we say to ourselves, now what did they have in mind? With this, what what was what was their mindset? I think that's because we're asking a question in the in you know we're not we're not trying to find out what was their cognitive thought. We we already have a, an idea of that because we're looking at the manifestation. We're looking at the illustration of that working its way out in their behavior, and I believe that's part of what Paul has in view here in, in our text in verse five when he says that we should have this. Mind, And by mind, he is saying this this mindset, this set, this attitude or this set of operating priorities. So this morning, just two questions along uh, and along those lines as we trace two different directions that I think are pretty obvious, downward and upward. And they're listed in the order of service. The two questions are this with regard to the downward humiliation what does Christ have in mind? In those opening verses 5 through 8, then the pivot, exaltation, beginning in verse 9, what does the Father, God the Father, have in mind? 
What is, first of all, the humiliation we see here? What does Christ have in mind? Now, when we, when we, we, we look at the, that phrase there, verse 5, that he would commend to them to have this mind, he, he could be referring back to uh, verse 2, which is to, that they would have a selfless and, and loving uh, one-mindedness, or he could be uh, referring to, to Christ's mind. It, could, it doesn't have to be either or. It's really both, uh, so to speak. But the same mind, what is that mindset? What is that attitude of Christ? Well, we see it's, it's humility. It's a posture. It's a mindset uh, that is humble. Now, I don't say this uh, this morning uh, as an exercise in provocation, but except to say the truth. We live in a time and we live in a culture right now where pride is, is lauded and praised and worshipped and we, we think it a virtue of, 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 of the highest order. But Proverbs, the wisdom of God's word and the person of Jesus communicate clearly to us that pride is a tragedy. It is a disease. It is a problem. Humility is virtuous. Which is, which is not... Humility, by the way, is not uh, self-deprecating, low uh, thoughts of self. I've said this before, uh, quoting Tim Keller. I think he's channeling C.S. Lewis when he says this. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Some of you have used that as well. You're familiar with it. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's thinking, in other words, it's, it's not thinking low thoughts or, or, or you know, cruel reflection on self. It's thinking accurate and biblical thoughts of self, both of our worthiness and our weakness, of our ability and our, our limitation, our inability. In college, I enjoyed uh, reading uh, Leo Tolstoy. I was introduced to it in a religion and literature class. Leo uh, Tolstoy has uh, novels that have a moral uh, force. And in many regards, unfortunately, I discovered later that he was a bit of um, uh, an illustration, if you will, of a modern day Pharisee. Tolstoy, his desire, his diary, excuse me, his diaries reveal that as a young man of just 25, he was already conscious of his special power and his commanding moral destiny. This is what he writes in his journal. I read a work on the literary characterization of genius today, and this awoke in me the conviction that I am a remarkable man, both as regards capacity and eagerness to work. I have not yet met a single man who was morally as good as I, and who believed that I do not, and I and who believe that I do not remember an instance in my life when I was not attracted to what is good and was not ready to sacrifice anything to it. Well, clearly he felt uh, in his own soul, uh, he quotes this, an immeasurable grandeur. He was baffled by the failures of other people to see and recognize his own qualities. He writes this, why does nobody love me? I'm not a fool. I'm not deformed. I'm not a bad man. I'm not an ignoramus. It's completely incomprehensible. Is it? No. It's not hard to understand. He was... What did he have in mind? <laughs> well, we, we actually know because he had in mind 
Tremendous thoughts of self. Inflated, exaggerated thoughts perhaps of self. But we really know what he had in mind because of his behavior. He went on to be someone who mistreated women. He was one who used people. He didn't. He married his wife. He did not love or serve her well. His wife, Sonia, who was 16 years his junior, birthed 13 children. Five of those children died in childhood, and Tolstoy did not help at all with child-rearing. What did he have in mind? Self. Now, even if he was at 25 all the things that he imagined himself to be, it, it's just not accurate. Jesus, though, Jesus... Could he say that? Could, could, could he contemplate his greatness? Of course he could. Jesus has always existed. The, the, the Son of God, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, by the simple power of his word, spoke into existence all things. Yes, he could. But this is not something that he grasped for. We read that here in our text. Now be careful. I know it's, it's easy to say, well, that's just disgusting how he lived and what he thought and what he had in mind. But, but friends, we, we all struggle. In reference to other people, to compare, we boast of self. And in the sight of God and all of His perfection and holiness, it is, it, is, it is ugly too. What did Jesus have in mind? Well, verse 6 says, He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. He didn't rob it. He didn't grab for Himself that. He had others in mind. He had love and love for other people. Jesus loved others. And Paul here traces for us the stages of that humiliation. First of all, he emptied himself, which is not to say that he stopped being divine, but that he laid aside the independent uh, usefulness or operations of those attributes of God. And secondly, here Paul traces for us that he permanently became a human, incarnate, One of the mysteries of our faith that he took on a physical but yet sinless body. And then he used that body. The third stage is he used that body to to love with tenderness and care, with healing touch, with 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 selfless service. Other people he became and took on the form of a servant, even though he was king, is king. And then lastly, he took that body, that physical body, with all of, all of the limitations and all of the inconveniences and, and, and all of the awkwardness and discomfort and all of, the humani- all of human emotion. And then he went physically and experienced the anguish and the shame of the cross. He died willingly. It's the ultimate form of humiliation. To die on a cross, to die by by means of crucifixion was such a humiliating thing that Roman citizens were prohibited from being executed that way. And Muslims to this day, who hold Jesus to be a prophet, will say that they do not believe in the crucifixion because it's not possible, for in their estimation, for a prophet of God to endure the humiliation of crucifixion. But indeed, as we confess, he did. Why? What did Jesus have in mind? He had love, love for others. Romans 5 says that God demonstrates his own love towards us in this, that while we were lovely and beautiful and handsome and and winsome and moral and abiding and just so, no, 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 no. 
God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. The sacrifice of love. In our place. Humiliation. Okay, we went down. Verses 5, 6, 7, 8 go down. And then we have this, this next question. This next, it's very obvious, the pivot. Verse 9. Therefore, here's the exaltation. What do we find there? Except what God the Father had in mind. Therefore, we're going to answer the why. It's therefore in, uh, in, verse, in verse 9. Therefore, God highly exalted him. God the Father has in view that he would honor the humble obedience of Jesus and then, and then lift him to the highest place. You can't help but have the imagery here of a slingshot, so to speak. You know, you have a slingshot where with great effort, further and further and further and further down, it's stretched. And then all of a sudden, with great thrust and force, it's shot up. Christ is lifted then to the ultimate high point. And by the way, to say that he was given the name that is above every name is not to say that there's something unique about Jesus, the name of Nazareth, but to say that his title, his, the divine name that he enjoys, that he is now to be honored, the God-man, the title that no one else holds. But the exaltation is not simply for Jesus and just for his own enjoyment and sake. No, it actually spills over and there are tremendous and beautiful consequences to that exaltation in the form of worship and mission. There is praise. There's praise of the God-man. We cannot make too much of Jesus. We'd be very inclined to make too much of ourselves, but we are, we're, it's not possible for us to make too much of Jesus. I have a lot of friends that think I do. And I know I need to make more of him. And, 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 and for him to receive that praise is to spill over into the glory and praise of God the Father. That's what the last verse says in verse 11. Everyone will proclaim. In fact, it's part of the mission because the vision here is that people from every ethne, every, every language, every culture will bow down. That's why we believe in the advancement of the gospel to the nations. To gather more worshipers. That's the purpose of mission is to gather more worshipers for him. And everyone will confess that he is Lord. Tragically enough though, some will do it to their utter shame and condemnation because they did not proclaim him as Lord of their life beforehand. They didn't trust him by faith. They didn't trust him in this life as Redeemer. And when he comes again, they will be forced in his presence because of his position and authority as judge to call him Lord. All right. There's the humiliation. What did Christ have in mind? The exaltation, what God the Father had in mind. What do you have in mind? So what? It's one to just spend a, a season for us to reflect on our lives. What do you have in mind? Do you have yourself in mind? How's that help in your marriage? How's that help in your relationships? How's that how's that how's that helping? If you think of yourself and your orientation there, it's natural. We do seek our own interests. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. He says, even in the verses prior, to seek your interest, but to seek others' interests. 
before yours. Not to not seek yours, but to seek others before yours. But let me say this. If you're thinking about self, let me invite you to think about your Creator and your Redeemer more. Are you seeking Him to be the Lord of your life? And would you do that now, today? You can do that this very day. Surrender your life. That you can make Him King. Because it hasn't been working when you've tried to make yourself king or queen or ruler, master. And to know the mind of Christ, our desire, we, we're, we're commended here, verse 5, to know, to have, to hold that attitude, that mindset of Jesus. But to know the mind of Christ is not to fulfill, oh, I want to know the mind of Christ, as if I'm like intellectually you know, curious or something. Because to truly know the mind of Christ is a transformative reality. Profoundly experiential in our lives. I think some of you heard me tell the story. It was a, a spring day. Uh, the water, we were, uh, I was over at Oldham Pond and uh, the water was cold and it was really choppy because of the wind. But it was a perfect day to take out my little sailboat. And uh, I'm sailing across uh, the pond. Everything's going well. Until it wasn't, and uh, the wind uh, threw me over, and I capsized the boat. Uh, not a big deal, uh, you know. I I I climb up out of the cold water. I right the boat, sail back to shore. I'm sitting there talking to friends, and then uh, I I realized as I was tapping my hand against the chair that I didn't hear something, and I had lost my wedding band. I think we'd only been married like 12 years at that point, but it was it was a real bummer. You know, and it's one of those moments when you lost something that's really precious, uh, but there's not a doggone thing in the world you can do about it when you look out over that water because it's just like, well, I mean, there is it's it's impossible to find the precise spot and to 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 find this ring. Last week, I kid you. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't find it. (laughs) Oh, I had you. Oh, just for a second. No, I did not. But I did manage to break a prop on our boat. But that's a whole other story about my own little Bermuda Triangle in that same pond. So uh, all that to say, it's one of those times when you, you just think to yourself, it's just not possible. I think when we look at that passage and we consider the example of Jesus in his humility, in his serving, in his loving and just illustrating that very principle of doing nothing out of selfish ambition, but considering others and their interest ahead of yours. You just think of that in the spirit and in the manner of Jesus, and you think, it's just not possible. I mean, it would be good, it's valuable, but it's just, it's just not possible. It is, it is really impossible to do this. Jesus takes mistreatment, misunderstanding, the misunderstanding of his own family and friends, not just his stark enemies. He faces rejection. He's even betrayed. He even has violence done against him. And what does he have? He carries in that a mindset and an attitude, an attitude of being a servant even to the point of sacrifice. So what do we say? It's impossible for me to live in the example of Jesus. And I say to that, yes. And no. And let me explain, because I want you to get this. I think it's an important principle for us. Whenever we approach uh, the story, when when we read in the gospel accounts of Jesus and his person and work, that we we read this and we think, what an exemplary, beautiful human being. Of course we do. 
And we prize Jesus to be an example. And we as followers of Jesus, committed followers of Jesus, if that's you this morning, this day, Jesus is always a model for us. But he's never less than that. He's always more. In in other words, it's wrong to consider Jesus only a moral example. As as a teacher, as, as an example, as someone that we would try to mimic. Let me give you an example. 1 Peter chapter 2. For this you've been called, because Christ suffered, also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Okay, there it is, it's commended to us. But then further down, a few verses later, Peter writes... He, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. That's not us. We, we, cannot, we cannot die for the sins to bear up other people's sins or ours. But we can die to our sin. That's what he says to do. By God's grace, His truth, His spirit, we can and should die to sin and walk in righteousness as Jesus has shown. We humbly do this, I would hope, it's only possible, doesn't have to be a hopeful thing, it's only a reality if we've done it in humble reliance upon Him. I remember uh, one year, it was actually my, it was my 30th birthday, which seems like a long time ago now, sadly enough. My mom said uh, we could go to Toys R Us. There used to be this store called Toys R Us. Does anyone remember this? I got to go to Toys R Us, and for my 30th birthday, my mom let me pick out a toy. So I did, and uh, I had a three-year-old with me. Uh, His name was Jack, and he wanted a toy too, but it was my birthday. And so we got a a, a pair of goggles and a nice snorkel. And I was super excited to go to the lake and, uh, and to use these goggles. And for the first few days, I used to laugh when Jack would throw something off the dock because it meant, oh, great. I get to use my goggles and show how cool it is that I can find stuff, you know, down the bottom of, of the lake. Except one day when I heard something fall off the boat or fall off the back of the dock and I noticed that Jack had thrown the goggles in the, the water. I need the goggles to find the goggles. Friends, followers of Jesus, you need Jesus to do what Jesus told you to do. Okay, that was not profound. That's that's obvious. But why is it so hard? It's so hard. We cannot be moral people, kind people, humble people who seek to truly implement all that Christ calls us to in our own strength. There's a great hymn, May the mind of Christ my Savior dwell in me from day to day. And there's this phrase in there, it says, Him exalting, self-abasing, this is victory. Him exalting, us humbling, this is victory. That's bizarre. But it's true. Here's your test. This week, not if, but when. This week, when you feel offended by another, maybe you feel unappreciated. 
parents, love you kids. When you feel this week, would you feel, any one of you, you feel criticized, justly or unjustly, you feel criticized even in a small way. Not, not, not rejected like Jesus, but just a critical word. Ask yourself, why is this so hard to receive? And then you need to cry out to God, help me. Help me, Father, have the mind of Christ. We desperately need Christ. We need his grace. We need his mercy. We need his forgiveness. We need his spirit to motivate and able to empower us. But that involves humble faith and not a bold, self-confident assertion. Because we are united to Christ, here's your hope as we close. We can trust that the tr- that true humility in our life will not and cannot be forgotten. Our humility will be seen. And by the Father, it will be rewarded in the end. If we follow Him, Christ, who is worthy by faith, I promise you, you and I will not be disappointed. It's in John 14 that Jesus looks to His disciples and He says to them, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I will come again. He's anticipating his death and resurrection. He says, I will come again and I will take you to myself. And where I am, you will also be. And you will know the way where I am going. And then he gets interrupted by Thomas. Hold on a second. No, 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 no. We don't know the way. And that's when Jesus responds to him. Simple, clear, beautiful. I am the way. I, not... Sorry for grammar. Definitive article. Not a way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. We must live with Jesus, cherish Him, trust Him, relate to Him. We need to have the mind of Christ. That mindset that verse 5 is commended to us, the same as Jesus, which is what? The way up is the way down. The way up is actually the way down. Trust Him. He is the way. Pray with me. Lord, we pray uh, that You would give us uh, what before us is a profound, uh, beautiful vision that You would take and let it shape and that it would... It would Lay hold of our hearts and our lives and our priorities. I ask that you, Lord, use the frustrations and the challenges and the suffering of this life for your purposes. That you would make us a humble people, servants like Jesus for your glory. Would you convince us, Lord, every person here, anew or or afresh for the first time, by the power of your spirit, that Jesus is the way. And that the way down is the way up. And that humility leads to true joy. Would you please help us, Father, to be ambassadors for Jesus? There are many in our families, our communities, our nation and countries around the world that we would love to see gathered, redeemed, to become worshipers for your praise and to the glory of you, Father. Lord, I pray today that you'd bless those who are are trapped and blinded by pride those who are spiritually adrift and they may or may not even know it, 
Lord, I pray you'd help us all to take up the armor, the full armor this week. You'd remove the deceitful eyes of the enemy that we would see clearly. Would you comfort, God, those? Even heal those who are facing sickness in our midst. Lord, I I think of of teachers who who need rest this summer. Lord, I pray for, for those of us who need grace to endure and be patient under many trials. Lord, I pray you'd comfort those who are troubled relationally, emotionally, in their relationships and otherwise. Lord, I pray for people in other parts of the world like Haiti and Cuba and South Africa right now who are facing all variety of unrest and even violence. Lord, that you would have mercy and you would restrain evil. Lord, teach us. Thank you for your word. Thank you now as we come to your table. Thank you. Humble us, we pray. Even now, in Jesus' name, and as he taught his disciples, as we pray together, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come.